Because we are coming to the conversation also with our own baggage, it is critically important that not making any assumptions, you're just opening up an avenue for a conversation should they want to have one. Trying to engage in positive thinking or gratitude or affirmations, we should write those down. The outside world is fickle and unreliable when it comes to reinforcement, which is why what I'm asking people to do is actually make a cognitive shift in the way that they think about how they live. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Okay, friends, I cannot wait for you to hear today's conversation with Jennifer Gutman for her book, Beyond Happiness, The Six Secrets of Lifetime Satisfaction. I learned so much reading her book, and honestly, some of the takeaways I have literally implemented into my daily life. We talk about this in the show, but in particular, the concept of avoiding assumptions. This is a potentially life-changing concept. Now that I've become attuned to it, I am a little bit shocked how much I was making assumptions all the time about what people were thinking or meaning or doing, when really, maybe we should just take everything at face value. And we dive into so many other topics. This interview really is a treasure trove of actionable, easily implementable mindset shifts and habits that you can do in your life. We talk about intrusive thoughts, how all decisions are actually guesses, which is a big relief when you think about it. The concept of how you will never know if you made the right decision and how that is also very freeing. Whether or not there is always an exit, the potential silliness of participation awards, whether or not you need to have therapy and understand the role of your childhood in your trauma, how to actually say no and not apologize for it, and so much more. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash beyond happiness. Those show notes will have a full transcript as well as links to everything that we talked about. So definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then find my Friday announcement post on Instagram. And again, comment there to enter to win something that I love. If you're enjoying the show, the absolute best way to support it, I promise, is actually to subscribe and or write a brief review on Apple Podcasts. It helps so much more than most people realize. So thank you so much in advance for that. And then speaking of podcasts, friends, I think I'll go ahead and announce this. I am launching a third podcast. I'm trying to decide how much to tell you about it. I am so excited about it. It is not health and wellness related. Well, not entirely. I do have a co-host and it is a fun time. I'm literally doing it just for fun. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. To not miss the announcement, make sure you're on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash email list and stay tuned for the announcement. We are planning to launch it in December. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content. 
tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, They are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experience the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, It may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's Avalon X to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys If you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. 
You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this fabulous conversation with Dr. Jennifer Gutman. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is with the author of an incredible book that I honestly, truly think should be required reading for humanity because it contains so much practical information that will provide paradigm shifts to how you approach life, interpret life, and possibly achieve, although we can talk about whether or not this is the goal, the concept of happiness. So I am here with Dr. Jennifer Gutman. She is a clinical psychologist and the author of Beyond Happiness, The Six Secrets of Lifetime Satisfaction. She's also the founder of Sustainable Life Satisfaction. She has a related YouTube web series. She's been featured in Psychology Today, Thrive Global, Washington Post, NBC, Reader's Digest, Teen Vogue, all the things. And friends, I'm just so excited to talk about this book because I have been practically implementing 
so many of the things that I learned in the book daily, honestly. Dr. Gutman talks about basically these six different techniques you can use to achieve satisfaction in life. So avoiding assumptions, avoiding people-pleasing, facing your fears, making decisions, closing, and self-reinforcing. I'm just so excited. Dr. Gutman, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Melanie. I'm excited to talk about the book. (laughs) I'm not, not making this up. There's been a few things I've learned from the book where I literally daily use them, especially the avoiding assumptions. And when you hear something from somebody or interpret something from somebody, asking yourself, what assumptions are you making? And would your interpretation stand up in court? Like, do you have evidence that what you're thinking is accurate? But in any case, before diving into everything, you open the book with your own personal story, which you experienced a lot, which led to your epiphanies surrounding the concept of happiness and what we all seek in life. So would you like to tell listeners a little bit about that story and your relationship with your son and everything that happened? Sure. I mean, I wrote Beyond Happiness and started to think about sustainable life techniques after I had three watershed experiences in my life. And a lot of people have watershed experiences, but for me, it was a crisis time in my life where I had three events happen in a short period of time in an 18 month period. My son had a life threatening event that required open heart surgery. And then I had a life threatening event. And then after that, my father passed away. And it was during that time that I decided that I needed to look at my life more critically and decide if I was doing the things that I sort of set out to do after graduate school. And I paused and tried to think about what it was that my clients were really struggling with. And I realized that what a lot of them were struggling with was this idea of happiness. And it was during that time that the kernels of sustainable life satisfaction were born. With this concept of happiness, where have you arrived as to what happiness actually is? What I've recognized is that the problem is that people think that they're supposed to be happy all the time, but happiness is an emotion. And like all emotions, it comes and goes. It's not meant to be long lasting. So it's not surprising that I have had and had thousands of clients come into my office over the past 30 years telling me that they felt like they were failing at being happy, but you can't fail at an emotion. Happiness is is temporary. And so people kept chasing a fleeting emotion. And I recognized that happiness is the wrong goal. And I wanted people to start focusing on something that was achievable instead of something that was unattainable. And I love that. And it's kind of similar as far as the achievable versus unattainable. A lot of what you talk about in the book is analyzing the way we think. So it seems a little bit esoteric in that it's, you know, how you're thinking about things, but what you end up providing is actual implementable actions, which I love and like actual like things that you can say. But so to go through some of these, these six satisfaction, life satisfaction techniques, how did you, well, first of all, how did you arrive at those? Did you sit down one day and like come up with them or did it evolve over time? 
How did you come up with them? The way that I came up with them is when I was looking at these events that had happened in in my life, my son's illness, my illness, and then my father dying, I reflected on what was it that kept me resilient during that time? What, what was the thing that made me keep getting up every morning with all of that happening in such a short period of time? And I was trying to figure out what what was the resilience made out of? And I came up with six things that helped me build up enough of an empowered self-concept to continue on. And I realized that I was avoiding assumptions because it would have been easy to fall into a lot of assumption making during a period of time, let's say with with my son and doctors telling me that there was nothing wrong with him when there was actually something critically wrong with him. And I realized that reducing people-pleasing behaviors was something that kept me going for, for a similar reason. People telling me that I, I shouldn't pursue further diagnoses for him because the doctors had told me that there was nothing wrong with him and that actually wasn't the case. And then I also tried to figure out what also kept pushing me forward was decision-making and how I curated decisions both for my own health and his health and tried to figure out what made sense authentically for me, even if it might not have made sense authentically for other people. Facing my fears was important because I was terrified for, for him, for our family, and how could I persevere despite that? And, and what did that look like? What did, you know, moving into the unknown look like for me and how was that building up resilience? And then also closing out tasks. Once I made a decision about the avenues that I would take for his health, for my health, or when I was going through the grieving process with my father, how did that contribute to me continuing to move on? And then the last piece of it was how did I take care of myself during that period of time? And what role did self-care take in allowing me to continue to persevere and and not I mean don't get me wrong there were definitely times when I wanted to curl up in my bed and not move but how did how did it contribute to me being able to continue to to move on from you know one of these traumatic events to the next I love the sense of agency that is created by all of this. Okay, and I'm so excited to talk about these individually. First some questions just in general because you make a pretty bold statement that all of these are required for life satisfaction. Do you find with yourself and with your patients that do most people struggle with most? Do some people struggle with some? Does everybody struggle with at least all of them a little bit? Like what's the, what's the range of how people experience these? In my experience, I've never met anybody that didn't struggle with at least one of them. So I would say that most people struggle with one, some, all of them, but I have yet to meet a human that doesn't struggle with at least one of them. I think that it's human nature to struggle with at least one of them, which is why what I'm asking people to do is actually make a cognitive shift in the way that they think about how they live. And it's a, it's a big ask, but it's definitely doable. And I'm asking that of people because I think that it creates more effective cognitive optimization for people to live their lives in a more effective and efficient way and create more resilience and a better sense of self-empowerment and self-respect and also a better sense of inherent lovability. And because of that, I can 
I, I have yet to meet somebody that doesn't struggle with at least one of them. And I think that your point was prudent when you said that when you read the book right away, you thought, oh, I can at least work on avoiding assumptions. And I, I don't, I mean, I myself work all of the time on avoiding assumptions because I think that that's a very common one that people work on. That's a hard one. You created the order of discussing them for a certain reason, but I'm just like looking at the order and I think they're almost in order of how hard it is for me because avoiding assumptions is definitely my my biggest thing probably. And then the people pleasing, I'm always actively working on on that. But then at the end, like I feel like the one I struggle the least with is closing. And then the self-reinforcing is a really interesting concept. So I'm just going to say for listeners, get the book because there's so much information about all of these. And like we just said just now, different people will struggle with different things. So there's no way we could touch on everything. So maybe I'll just dive into the things that really resonated with me. Okay, so with avoiding assumptions, my biggest question about this, because you talk about why evolutionarily we make assumptions. And it's really, you know, we're making predictions to have a sense of control because we can't control life. And so we're always trying to interpret, you know, what's going to happen and what people mean and what they're saying and what they're actually thinking. And so are we supposed to literally take everything everybody says at face value? Because I'd have to assume that people do lie and people do people please and people do not say what they mean. So to what extent should we try to interpret what people are saying as it may be different from what they're actually saying or doing. The problem is that although it may be that people aren't saying exactly what it is that they mean, because we are coming to the conversation also with our own history, our own lens, our own baggage, even if they are not ex- not saying what they mean, we too are interpreting what they may not be saying what they mean through our own histories. And so because of that, it is critically important that we only use the information that we actually know before we act. And the reason for that is if once we decide that we think that we're clued in to what they mean, even though they haven't said it, we can start to make social changes in how we interact with that person. So let's say I think somebody has rolled their eyes at me and maybe that person doesn't believe that they did that. Maybe it's a reflex that they don't even know that they did. And I'm interpreting an eye roll as meaning something about dismissiveness or or that they're angry at me. And maybe that person didn't mean to dismiss me at all. Maybe they eye-rolled for some other reason or didn't even realize they were eye-rolling at all. And then I come up with lots of scenarios about how I feel about the fact that this person may have a problem with me. And then that affects my next interaction with them, which then affects their next interaction with me. And that's the problem with us deciding that we're going to look at nuanced behaviors and act based on nuance. Because even though, sure, sometimes we could be right, there are plenty of times when we could be wrong. When we're not sure, if let's say we go through a period of time where somebody is not verbally saying that they have a problem with us, but we're regularly catching nonverbals that would indicate to us that there's a problem, that would be a time to mindfully ask them a question. But I would recommend waiting until you have some evidence of repeated nonverbals 
not just once, but repeated nonverbals before you say something along the lines of, I'm picking up something and I'm not sure what it may be. Would you like to share? Because now you're not putting any words in their mouths. You're not making any assumptions. You're just opening up an avenue for a conversation should they want to have one. But again, I wouldn't do that based on one situation. I would I would try to gather more nonverbal information before jumping on it. Apart from that, I yes, I firmly believe we should base information on verbal, concrete behavior. And as you mentioned before, unless you have enough concrete information that you could present it to a jury of your peers and convince a jury of your peers, do not act on assumptions that you're making because it will change the next social dynamic that you have with that person. A few years ago, a girlfriend and I, we, we were both in a period of time where we were both obsessed with, you know, individual, we had crushes on two different boys. We realized we were just going crazy trying to figure out what they were thinking or meaning. And, and so we came up with a mantra, which was no hypotheticals. And so every time we found ourselves basically making assumptions, we would just say the mantra, no hypotheticals and just like <laughs> stop. So I really love that. But then since then, so since reading the book, I've just I've really started to implement this. I found myself doing it the other day where I was getting a lot of emails and literally everything was being said to me upfront and objective. And I was just creating this whole entire story. And I had to just keep coming back to this and tell myself, no assumptions, like just take everything at face value. I love this so much. So for the the people pleasing, I feel like I'm a, um, a recovering people pleaser. I I definitely was much more intense about this in the past when I'm trying to work on it. So people-pleasing, I think it's so, well, first of all, why do we become people-pleasers in the first place? For all of these, you know, we come by these behaviors honestly, and that a lot of it has to do with social learning theory. Bandora, who's the father of social learning theory, talks about how we learn behaviors from our caregivers through observation, imitation, modeling. And if we are praised for certain behaviors, for example, guessing about what somebody needs, anticipating their needs, and if we're reinforced for anticipating somebody else's needs or putting somebody else's needs before our own, if we're praised for that as children, then we go off into the world thinking, oh, this is this is a great way to be praised. This will be appreciated. The problem is that the outside world is fickle and unreliable when it comes to reinforcement. And even if you do put yourself last or anticipate somebody's needs, the likelihood that that's going to be acknowledged or validated or reinforced by the outside world is slim because people tend to not notice what we do. And then resentment starts to build. So it comes from early years of modeling behaviors. And that's one of the reasons that we need to try to break the habit. That sparked my memory about something really practical that I learned in that chapter that sticks with me, which was basically you can identify if you're doing people-pleasing behavior, if when you do something for somebody, will you feel resentful if they don't you know, respond in kind or do something back for you or don't appear grateful or thankful. I've really started using that that technique and that tip. Actually, that reminded me of a question about how you're raised. Two parts. First part is, so with social learning theory and how the effects of childhood, 
clearly it's really important and it's shaping why we do what we do today. How important is it that we actually know that personally? And what I mean is, do you need to know why you're doing what you're doing or can you just see the behavior and address it? Like how important is it that somebody goes and revisits, you know, their childhood with a therapist, like that aspect of it versus just making the changes now? It's not necessary. You can just go ahead and make the changes now. (laughs) (laughs) Please just go ahead and make the changes now. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I love that. That's my takeaway quote. (laughs) Hi friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys, and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. That's amazing. Okay. That's great. See, this is another reason I love this book. Like I said, it's action driven. Okay. So second question, this does relate to childhood though, but I I was so fascinated by this. And it was, you talk about how children are often praised for the process and not the goal. And I don't even, this might've been in a a different chapter, but okay. Well, just while we're talking about it, because I was so, because I was like so interested in this. What is the issue with children being praised for the process, not the goal? And how can parents encourage children along the way without making that, that error? The problem with overpraising children, praising children for the process, not the goal, is that when you get a lot of praise for starting, which is starting a a project or the process is that 
they're getting so much praise. They're not learning that there's any validation that may come with finishing it. And so because they've received so much praise either along the way or at the beginning, they don't see that there would be any real reason to complete it. And completing tasks is very difficult for most people. It's boring. It's mundane. The most difficult parts of completing a task are the fact that you've lost a lot of the energy and excitement that comes with the beginning. So when you get a lot of your initial praise at the front end, where it is the most exciting, and that's when you're getting the praise, then when it starts to get boring and you've already gotten the praise, what would be the motivation to continue anyway? Then abandon it, start a new project where you're going to get a lot of praise again, And it would be easy to abandon it at the point when it gets boring again. And the problem is that because we're so eager to encourage ideas, it becomes more and more difficult to, to praise people for project closure as opposed to project progress. This was, you know, brought home to light very clearly to me because my son, who was interested in being an entrepreneur when he was young, he would come to me honestly, every other day or every two days with a new idea. In the beginning, very enthusiastic about all of these ideas. And then at some point it occurred to me that my enthusiasm was actually not helping him. It was hurting him. And that's why he was so frequently coming to me with new ideas. And at some point I sat him down and I said, look, instead of coming to me with the new ideas, come to me when you finish one. And then we'll talk about how excited I am for you that you actually finished it. I love that. And I actually thought about this chapter. I'm, I'm right now I'm going through our storage unit and I found all my, all my, all my awards and trophies. And I found this one award and on one side it says Arbor Day. So I'm not really sure what we were doing. And on the back it says participation award. I'm like, <laughs> I don't even know, like what, what were, <laughs> were we planting trees and getting awarded for participating? So I just think it, it really I, it like saturates culture more than I think we even realize. I will come back to the people pleasing, but um, that also relates to the last chapter where you talk about self-reinforcing ourselves along the way as we're making these choices. I think you literally say this is not a participation award. Like you, you know, you need to, well, I should probably let you define first what you mean. How do we um, reward ourselves and our journey and when and how do we do that? We are taught so much from an early age that all of reinforcement should be delegated to the outside world. We learn it when we get trophies in Little League. We learn it when we get participation awards. We learn it when we get awards. You know, now they won't even allow awards in schools for, you know, different types of behaviors that are good because then the kids that don't get the awards are left out. So you get an award for absolutely everything. So, you know, there's no matter what the message is, external rewards, external validation is critical in order for you to develop self-worth. And you see that not just with the awards that you get in school or the trophies that you get in Little League, but then you also are, um, you know, immersed in it in all of the award ceremonies that you see. And not only that, but then you also see it in, in, you know, sports events and everything with the trophies. So you grow up in an environment where it feels like value and worth are determined by somebody else. Because of that, then it's not surprising that you would look to the outside world as the 
you know, barometer for am I doing well? But again, as I mentioned before, the outside world is fickle and unreliable when it comes to reinforcement. And even when somebody does think that you're doing well, it frequently doesn't go from their brain, the thought that you're doing well, past their lips to your ears that they thought that you were doing well. So they could think you're doing great. They just don't remember to tell you which is why it's critical that you create your own idea bar for which you think you're doing well. And then you figure out how you're going to reinforce yourself for it, how you're going to validate yourself and then follow through on doing that thing. And there are so many ways that we can do that in the world. We can, we can decide that if we do this, we're going to make a nice meal for ourselves. We're going to take ourselves to a ball game. We're going to go for a walk. We're going to go to the movies. I mean, there's millions of ways. It just has to feel authentic to you. To that point, you mentioned we're waiting for people to tell us that we're doing well. You also make the distinction with doing it for ourselves that we, we can't just stop. It's not just verbal praise though. So we can't just tell ourselves we're doing well, right? Like we have to actually do something physically to reward ourselves. Yes. Tangible reinforcement of some kind is critical because when you just are telling yourself, hey, I did a good job, your brain doesn't absorb that as anything truly meaningful. If you write down an affirmation that reflects some kind of pride, that that is good because that is tangible. And any other activity that you do, it doesn't have to be costly. It just has to be any activity where you're telling yourself, I'm doing this because I did that. Because remember that the outside world is providing a tangible reinforcer. So if they're providing a tangible reinforcer, then you need to also provide yourself with some kind of tangible reinforcer. I have a lot of clients that when I tell them to reinforce themselves in some way, and then I check back in with them the next week, they tell me, well, I told myself, and I'll say to them, well, how's that working for you? And they'll tell me, not so well. I'm like, I know it's not working so well, but if you open the notes folder of your phone and even just write down the affirmation, it will work a lot better for you than if you just tell yourself because your brain is dismissing you telling yourself that much quicker than it would consider dismissing something that you wrote down. And to clarify again, when do we do this? So presumably it's not just along the way of doing well, because that would be participation, right? It has to be like an actual accomplishment of something or when, when are we doing this behavior? My recommendation, and I talk about this in the book, is that you decide what the bar is that you hurdle because we're the best evaluators of ourselves. We are also our own worst critics, but also the best evaluators of ourselves. So anything that we feel like is challenging, if we feel like if if one of my in my one of my chapters you face fear. So if you faced a fear that day, you may want to reinforce yourself. If you had a difficult decision to make and you made it, reinforce yourself. If you closed out a task that you had promised yourself you would close out by a certain deadline, reinforce yourself. So anything that you recognize that you say to yourself, wow, I did that, or it would be nice if somebody noticed that I did that, reinforce yourself. And I think we have similar reinforcers. I really appreciate and love your love of theater. And I do the same thing with orchestra seats. (laughs) So I'm so jealous of you in New York. We have the Fox Theater here where they have the touring Broadway shows. And it's just like my favorite thing in the world. I try to go to as many as I can. That's awesome. 
Yeah, for the, your listeners, if if you don't know, I write a story in the book about how my self reinforcer is to take myself to the theater. And when I went to pick up tickets at a will call at one point, the person handing out my tickets made fun of me and said that I treated myself too well because I was buying myself orchestra tickets. And and in the book, I reflect on the fact that if he's not treating himself as well for the things that he is proud of himself of that it would be nice if he, I, I thought this, I didn't say this. It would be nice if he considered treating himself better. I was super curious when that happened, was he actually joking or was he also, was he actually being a little judgmental? I mean, my impression, and it would be an assumption. Assumption. My- I know <laughs> this is an in real time. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I realized that while saying it, I was like, Oh, <laughs> my impression was judgment, but I do not have enough information to, you know, really say all I said to him was, yes, I do treat myself well because I, you know, I didn't have enough information to do anything than give him the, you know, generous evaluation of the comment. And if I was going to just stick to it, Verbally, then it would be generous. And I just said, yes, I do treat myself well. So, see, that's a good example, though, of just how often it happens, you know, the potential of making assumptions about people. What show were you seeing? I'm just curious. Oh my gosh, that story was written about a show I saw a long time ago. And I see a lot of shows I really don't remember. (laughs) Okay, I will stop myself because I could go on that tangent for a long time. Okay, so going back to the people pleasing, and we're back, something I really love from that chapter, and it's something that I have to work on all the time and I talk with a lot. I had a conversation yesterday with my co-host for the other show all about this, which was saying no to people. So the concept of saying no, why do we struggle with it so much? How can we do it more and why should we do it more? It's important to be able to say no because it's a way to protect yourself from putting yourself last. And a lot of my clients will talk about how they don't like to say no because they think that they will be perceived as mean or uncaring. But it's a way to set up a boundary about, you know, that you value your time. And it's also a way to start building interdependent relationships with people as opposed to codependent relationships with people. And so learning to say no is, is really critical. I I give some examples of how to say no, some scripts for how to say no in the book. I'll give you some examples now because I think that they can help people. And they are examples of how you can say no mindfully and in a way that doesn't come across mean or uncaring. And there are things like, I would really love to help you, but unfortunately I'm already committed at that time. Or that sounds like a lot of fun to me. I don't think that that activity is exactly right for me, but I would love to do something else with you. Or thank you for offering to include us in that celebration. I love spending time with you and your family and I'd love to be there, but I have a lot of work that I need to get done. So maybe we can figure out another time to celebrate. I would love to come this weekend, but I've been doing so much driving lately. So I was wondering if we could look at another date. I love that. Hearing the actual practical things to say is so, so helpful. Some nuanced questions about saying no, just because it's so, it just resonates with me so much. I was thinking a lot about it the other day. What happens when you find yourself in a situation where you have to say like where you want to say both yes and no. And my example is say that there is something you really want to do, but 
in order to do it, it's with another person. And so you would have to compromise. You would have to break prior plans with yourself in order to do this thing that you want to do more. Where's the nuance of honoring your prior plans and your commitments to yourself versus when you do need to compromise with other people to ultimately get what you both want? I mean, it's about what you, I mean, if if what you want to do is the activity with a person more than what you, uh, you know, and it's not that you want to do it more because you want to do it, it more for them, then do it. <laughs> I mean, I think that, that there is nuance in everything. I mean, if somebody, you know, if you're supposed to, you've made a plan with yourself and I think it really is very important to keep plans with yourself and not drop all of the plans that you have with yourself because somebody asks you to do an act of service for them. But if you have a plan with yourself and then somebody comes along and tells you they have amazing concert tickets, then sure, like you go, go to the concert. <laughs> I mean, I think that, you know, there's nothing in the book that is a hard and fast rule. I talk a lot about gray areas and everything falls in the gray area. So, you know, it is about trying to figure out where you fall in terms of what you authentically want to do. One of the things that I talk about in the book is something called a resentment check-in where you check in with your body. If this thing was, you know, if I don't do this thing or if this thing were to never be validated or appreciated or reciprocated, how do I feel in, in my body? So in your, in your example, if I don't do this thing, you know, how do I feel in my body? And if you get a twinge somewhere in, in your body that it wouldn't feel good not to do that thing, then, then maybe you should do it. But if you feel a twinge at the idea of not following through on the plan that you had made with yourself, then maybe you should say no to the new thing that was offered to you. So I think a lot of it has to do with checking in with your body and asking yourself, will I feel resentful if the person that is asking me to do something doesn't appreciate it because this is really about me and what I want to do? Hi friends, an incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, (laughs) drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. 
It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code melanieavalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. I love that. And just to iterate on it, I love what you just said now and what you say all throughout the book is honoring the plans with yourself. Because I, I feel like we definitely, or at least I often put it on a, on the totem pole beneath, like that they're not as important as plants with other people or external commitments. Yeah, I just love that concept. What's the role of not apologizing while saying no or explaining or justifying? The reason to not apologize or justify a no is because it demonstrates ambivalence. Once you open the door to the reason that I can't do this or I'm so sorry is that if you have been in the role of a people pleaser or somebody, somebody that engages in a lot of acts of service, it wouldn't be uncommon or, or honestly unreasonable for the person that's asking you for the favor to push a little bit because they're used to you saying yes. And when you seem overly apologetic or overly legitimizing of a no, then pushing to try to see if they can convince you wouldn't be surprising because you've opened the door for it. And since it's already so hard for people pleasers to say no, to be in a position where you'd have to say no again would be really difficult. And so that's why it's really important to not apologize for yourself, legitimize yourself. You want to have the freedom to just say no. And you also want to have the ability to say no if you don't want to do it. And once you start legitimizing the no's with reasons that you can't do it, what about the situation where you just don't want to and it's just because you don't want to, not because you have another plan, but just because it's something that you don't want to do. And it will get people around you used to the fact that you just don't always do all of the acts of service that are requested of you anymore. 
That's so true. It's a lot easier to argue with somebody who says no and then gives the reasons because then you just argue against the reasons. But if they just say no, then <laughs> what are you, you know, you going to say to that? And then I love that you can sub out essentially the apologizing because if it's coming from a place of wanting them not to feel bad or wanting to validate them, I guess, instead of apologizing, you can say, do examples like you just gave earlier where you're you know, thanking them and showing gratitude and telling them that you would love to do it, but, you know, you can't for whatever reason. So this is so ironic. I, I So I take notes on this notebook that has like a different quote every day or every page. So for prepping this show and the quote on one of the bottom, I'm just going to read it. So I'm curious your thoughts on this quote. I think it's probably talking to a slightly different concept, but I was like, what are the odds? This is literally where I was writing my notes about saying no. So the quote at the bottom says, I once asked a monk how he found peace. I say yes, he'd say. To all that happens, I say yes. What are your thoughts on that quote? I mean, it's hard to say, it's hard to say because it's a monk. (laughs) I feel like the monk is, is like, it's more interacting with the universe than people. (laughs) And so, you know, if, if what the comment is, is that the monk is interacting with the universe, then great. Then I think that the monk is saying that he accepts whatever the universe, whatever comes, you know, and doesn't expect to control the, you know, things that are the variables that are happening in the universe. And actually I am in support of that. I don't think that we can control variables in the universe. And a lot of the book is about how do you cope with the fact that you can't control the variables. The only thing that you can control is yourself. I don't think that a monk would be saying that they, you know, are, are comfortable with, you know, saying yes to people. I think that it's more, I would imagine a commentary on the fact that it's accepting of whatever the world puts in front of him and not fighting it. I agree. I think it's, it's talking to a a different concept entirely. It's just so interesting how the words yes and no can have so many meanings and layers to them. We need more words (laughs) for them. It's a lot of languages that have a lot more words than ours. So for yes and no, like specifically, I think that may be true, but just a lot more words to describe a lot of different things with a lot more nuance than the English language. (laughs) Oh man, goals. So, okay. The making decisions chapter, I I really loved that, that section. And it was so freeing because I definitely will get wrapped up in making decisions and so stressed about how it needs to be the perfect decision. Okay. So first of all, well, you say, this is fascinating that we make 35,000 decisions daily. That's a lot of decisions. How can we helpfully make decisions and what is the role of the actual outcome? Like, does the decision, do most decisions actually matter in the end? I think that the key thing is to recognize that decisions are guesses. People see decisions as binary. They see them as permanent. And in that way, all of a sudden, all of the decisions that we make become very high stakes. And then it becomes appealing to delegate decisions to other people, people that we feel have more experience or more education or knowledge of us. But if we can realize that actually there are no right or wrong decisions, anybody that tells you that there's a right or wrong decision is also guessing about decisions because decisions are by and large 
almost all decisions are impermanent, you can change them. People can change what college they go to. People can change what job they have. People can change what car they have. They are, and we are all just guessing. There's no magic wand that's going to say, this is the right decision for you. And this is the wrong decision for you. I think it gives people comfort to believe that there's a right or wrong decision, but there really isn't. And if you think about it like that, it should be very liberating. The most important thing to remember is that because their guesses, that should allow you to remember that you can pivot and change course if you chose a decision that you don't love. One of my clients had gotten a lot of pressure to move out of his home because he he was an empty nester and his friends were telling him that the house was too big for him and he listened to them and put the house on the market. And then one day he was walking around the house and he's like, what am I doing? Like, why am I doing this? I don't want to leave, leave this house. And, and he made the very brave move to, you know, take the house off the market and stay there because he realized that he was making an inauthentic decision for himself, even if it would have been an authentic decision for them. But each one of us has our own DNA and our own fingerprints. So really the only person that can make a true and authentic decision for us is us. And even though we can ask some trusted individuals to help us with that, opinion shopping to try to get a consensus isn't really going to work. Yes, this is just so freeing to me. And there were some things you said in that chapter that just really stuck with me. Like you talk about how statistically there are more decisions that are neither right nor wrong than that are right or wrong. That was like really freeing. And then also, so not only like the concept of making the decision, but having made the decision and then looking back on the decision and evaluating it, something I have struggled with a lot is making a decision and then sort of beating myself up saying I should have done, you know, something alternative, something different when really like you will, you will never know if you, if you had done something different, if it would have been better, like you, like you'll just never know. So there's really no point in (laughs) making that judgment. Exactly. And that, and that brings you back to the assumption, right? That you're making an assumption that it would have turned out differently. And I could say, well, make the other assumption, like instead of making the assumption things would have turned out differently if you had made the alternative decision. You could make another assumption because you're just guessing that your life would have been different the other way because we we don't have any knowledge of any of it. And so the only option is to just move on. Like it's everything is a learning lesson. You guessed this way and that was a learning lesson. What did you learn from it? And how are you going to pivot now? Take that information and choose your next course, choose, you know, the next journey based on what you have without, you know, going backwards and trying to, you know, do a postmortem on what could have been or would have been when it would have been based on all assumptions anyway. So how much time do you recommend people actually spend both leading up to making a decision and then how much time do they spend reflecting on it once it's made? I mean, I encourage people to not spend a tremendous amount of time making decisions, especially, you know, when you start with the smaller decisions, very short periods of time. I mean, I've had clients who labor over, you know, very small decisions, what what restaurant to go to or what, you know, nail polish to buy. So, you know, f- for those decisions, I encourage people to try to, you know, bring those down to a very, you know, just a few minutes. And then I've had clients where I've tried to get them to bring down decisions where they've belabored over, you know, what 
car to buy for many, many months and then try to bring that down to like do the research, make the decision. If you end up not liking the car, you can turn in the lease for another car or or sell the car and bring that down because over-researching, all that sending a message to your brain is that you can't cope with the possibility that it doesn't work out the way you want. It's not that the over-research is the thing that's going to help you make a better guess because it's not. It's just taking up a lot more bandwidth than you need to spend on this project. So I try to get people to make the decision quicker. In terms of assessing it afterwards, I mean, that is more like buyer's remorse to me. And I try to steer people away from that. Once the decision is made, you make the decision. If you feel authentically that it wasn't the right decision for you because it's actually not working out, not just because you're making assumptions that something else would have worked out better, then you can decide if there's another exit you wish that to, to walk through and how are you going to start pivoting to change course. Speaking of exits, what is the concept of leaving the room? Is there always an exit? Yes. So there, there is absolutely always an exit. I firmly believe that in life, we get curveballs all the time. Nothing works out the way that we anticipate and we should go into most situations expecting that things aren't going to work out the way that we planned. It's a great way to build up problem solving, coping, resilience. And if we go into it, assuming that things are not going to work out the way that we planned it, we can also go into it knowing that there is always an exit. Is it going to be the exact same outcome that we had initially anticipated? No. But could it be some close approximation of what we had hoped for? Yes. But the only way that we're going to get there is if we approach the problem calmly and rationally. I've had clients that have said to me, that's not true. I can control outcomes. And I've asked them sometimes, really, what can you control? One client said to me, well, when I leave here and I leave your office, I'm going to get in my car. My car is going to start and I'm going to get home. And I was like, really? Like you, you really, you really believe that that for sure is in your control because there are plenty of times and that might not be in your control. I mean, anything could happen. I mean, so there, you know, all of these things, but would there be an exit for that if her car didn't start? Of course there would. And would she be capable of solving that problem? Of course she would. And in that same way, whenever, I traveled with my children and I would travel and make these itineraries of these exciting things that we wanted to do. And I always went into it with, you know, under an understanding that some of them were not going to work out. Something was going to happen. And it was a joke that my kids would have where whenever something would go awry, they would say, okay, she just needs quiet because once she has quiet, she'll figure out what we're going to do next. Hi friends, I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair, and it is depleted 
exceeded by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels, and I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it. And it lasts for 14 hours. And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off.
one other topic to touch on, and we touched on it a little bit earlier, but it is the idea of closing and accomplishing goals and tasks. And, and like I said, so this is the thing I think I probably do the best with. And um, it's funny. So your exercise that you give where you talk about writing things on paper and having the the lists of like more long-term and short-term, like the big massive to-do list, that's literally the way I organize my calendar every week. Like I have one long list on the left that's all the things I need to do like ongoing. And then every day I, I write over like the individual things. I really don't know how people function without honestly, without <laughs> without that system. But I know we all have our own systems. So just some quick questions about that. The role of, so for people who do struggle with closing, <laughs> accomplishing tasks, what happens with unfinished tasks and intrusive thoughts? So it's very interesting. Our brains don't like to leave things undone. And we become very preoccupied with tasks that we haven't finished. There's been a lot of research on this. It's called the Zagarnik effect, which means that we pay, our brains pay much more attention to things that we have left hanging than things that we have actually completed, which is why when you, some of you may know that when you go into your house and you're looking at a pile of unpaid bills, or you know that you should have renewed your driver's license, those things, when you walk into your house, they're haunting you. They're, they're saying to you, you didn't do me, you didn't do me, you didn't do me. And it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's annoying to you. And they are undermining your sense of self-respect or your sense of self-confidence because they're there and you know you can do them. You just haven't done them. And that's because of this phenomenon where our brains can't let go of things that we know we should finish. We just haven't finished. And that's why it's so important to close out tasks because it does have a significant impact on our belief in our levels of competency. And then even if we are super successful in one area of our lives, if we know that we're sort of, you know, not as on top of things in other areas of our lives, it's very hard to take in compliments in areas of our lives where we are successful because we're so frustrated with ourselves and the areas of our lives that we, we don't have under control. There are two really practical ways. It's ironic because I was saying that this is the thing I feel like I do the best with, but also, obviously, there's a lot to learn and a lot I do struggle with. So two things from what you just said that I have very practically implemented into my life. So with the intrusive thoughts, I realized with checking email, for example, I would have this habit of like opening emails and like reading through them all and then kind of coming back to them later, like seeing what I needed to answer right then and answering them. But then I realized that what that creates is intrusive thoughts about all of these emails not answered. So having a habit for me where only opening the email, if I know I can answer it, if I I have time to answer it right then if needed, that's been really helpful. And then this explains so much. And I was like, how did I not realize this before? You talk about how all the things that we need to do and accomplish and tasks and to-do lists and how it's really important when you're making that list of everything to do, because you talk about what to do first, how it's helpful to do things that are related to something that you're seeing all the time physically in your space. And I realized, oh, because I'll have like a, a list of things I need to do like all the time and it's very long. And some of the ones that I won't do because they don't seem as important and they're, they're literal physical things in my apartment that I want to address. 
but they're, they're low on the totem pole. So I don't do them, but because I'm seeing them and every time I see them, I get a little bit annoyed that I haven't done it. I was like, Oh, I need to knock these out like right away. So that was just so practical. Thank you for that. Okay. Well, we have touched on so many things. I think listeners will understand now why and this is, we just barely scratched the surface. There is so much in this book that just gives people agency for life to, address the way we see the world and and can seek what is, quote, beyond happiness, which actually, appropriately enough, what is the role of gratitude? Because that actually relates to the last question that I ask every single guest on this show. Gratitude is really, I mean, it's, it's extremely important because we have a natural negativity bias as mammals. We, you know, come into the world with that because when we were, you know, being you know, sought by predators as mammals, we were looking for danger all over the place. And so we still have some of that. And in order to balance our negativity bias, and some of our assumptions come from that negativity bias, one of the things that we can do is recognize that we have that. But while we're balancing the negativity bias, be remembering to be grateful for all of the positive things that we have in our lives is a good way to remind our brains to light up the side of the brain that is grateful for the things that we have, whether it's our jobs or our families or hobbies that we have in our lives that we love or vacations that we've taken or our children, whatever it is that will light up the portion of our brain that sometimes can go a little dark when we're, you know, the side of our brain that is negative is lit up a little bit too much. And since the brain is always listening, do you have to actually feel it or can you just like say it to yourself and you'll eventually believe it? I personally am a big fan of writing things down. I think that even though the brain is always listening, I think that we're much more at risk of the brain listening to all of the negative things we say all day long to ourselves <laughs> and that our brain dismisses a lot of the positive things that we say. So when and we're trying to engage in positive thinking or gratitude or affirmations, we should write those down and that we should very carefully monitor the negative things that come out of our mouths because our brain is listening to all of that. But I think that the, when we're trying to like light up the part of our brain that is trying to build the neural pathways for optimizing positivity, we should be writing those down. Awesome. Well, like I said, it does relate to the last question that I ask every single guest on this show. And it's just because I think it's so, so important what you just talked about. So what is something that you're grateful for? I'm absolutely grateful every single day for my children and everything that they've taught me because I am a much better human being because of them and would definitely not have built or learned anything about a life sustainably satisfied if it wasn't for them. I love it so much. And for listeners, Dr. Gutman shares a really inspiring story about her daughter and her daughter's resilience in the book. So um, definitely, definitely get beyond happiness, the six secrets of lifetime satisfaction. As you can clearly see, it, it literally affects my life every day, the techniques that I've learned from it and the insight. So thank you so much, Dr. Gutman. How can people best follow your work? You can find me on my website at gutmanpsychology.com. You can, you can find everything that I'm doing on there, including my book, or, or you can find me on Instagram at gutman underscore psychology. And you can also find my book at any of the bookstores. <laughs> 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much. If you write another book in the future, I'd love to have you back. I would love to read it as well. So thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you to your listeners. This was great. Have a good day. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.